Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. So today we're going to be talking about stigmatization and the impact that it has on reentry outcomes. So today I have with me Dr. Kelly Moore, um, an assistant professor in the psychology department at East Tennessee State University. Dr. Moore uh, received her PhD in clinical psychology from George Mason University. Um, she has a lot of expertise in stigmatization as it pertains to uh, being associated with the criminal record and evidence-based treatments for justice-involved population, populations. Currently, a lot of her research focuses on the consequences of stigma for offenders with substance use disorders and identifying ways to reduce stigma in this population. So without further ado, I will allow Dr. Moore to um, add anything else that she would like to add or just say hello to the audience. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> okay, well, you know, with that, we'll just jump right into, you know, what we're going to be talking about. And like I said before, we'll be talking about stigmatization and how this uh, relates to reentry outcomes and the impact of it. So I guess like to start this off, uh, one thing that I have seen like just consistently throughout the literature is just like justice involved populations are considered one of the most stigmatized uh, groups among like marginalized groups. Basically, and for those out there that don't, I guess like don't necessarily understand what that means is like this group is more likely to experience discrimination or uh, encounter more negative consequences because of their involvement in the criminal justice system or because of their status of being an offender. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And what I've seen, um, they've called this the master status. Um, so Dr. Moore, I was wondering, is this a term that you have ever heard of or of something that you could expand on of like what this means? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I When I saw that we were going to be talking about the master status, I, I hadn't seen that term um, or at least not in a long time. It's, it's, it, it's been a while since I've done a lot of the reading in the theoretical literature. I've been doing a lot of reading in the empirical literature lately, but um, it's, yeah, so the term itself wasn't something that I um, was really familiar with, but I think that, you know, I, I get the, I get that when somebody has a, a criminal record or when they, you know, are involved with the legal system, um, especially if they have a, a felony on their record, that, that tends to be something that Kind of overshadows other other parts of their background, um, other pieces of, of who they are, and and it is something that I think people will receive a lot of a lot of negative judgments for, kind of regardless of whatever else they're doing. So it, it does, I think, in that sense, it does kind of overshadow other parts of who a person is, and and it becomes hard for people to look past it. So I can definitely see how it would be considered, um, a, you know, a status, a master status that that people are really seen for yeah so and I think that's what I've read too is like it's uh, it really strips them of the other identities that they may have so you know being a mother or you know being a daughter or um you know any other roles that they have and then like this this idea or you know this conviction essentially becomes who they are and that's essentially what defines them um and you know the trajectory of their life after that you know giving um you know, how we understand what this master status means and how it can be conveyed. What impact do you think like a status like that of having a felony conviction has on these individuals? 
Yeah, I mean, it has it has a lot of different impacts on people. I mean, it's you know, there's there's sort of the three typical ways that stigma impacts people or or kind of marginalizes them. And I think at the at the structural level, you know, you see a lot of a lot of just restrictions and regulations that people are are subjected to. Um, some of them are just legal sanctions and, you know, part of our, our legal system, like, you know, restrictions on certain types of employment or things like that. But um, a lot of the, the structural issues we see that are, or the regulations that are, uh, you know, um, in place to restrict people with a criminal record from sort of accessing resources and other elements of being in, in the community are just, they make it really hard for people to re-enter, you know, um, it's hard to get certain types of housing, it's hard to be eligible for financial aid or public assistance, depending on what your crimes are. Um, There's all sorts of things like that, uh, that that really just make it hard for people to access things that they need. And then there's the social stigma, which is kind of what we're all, you know, maybe most familiar with. And that's, that's our, you know, our own attitudes and judgments and the ways we treat people um, who are in these sort of groups. Um, so in this case, people that have a, a criminal background or a felony on their record. Um, and that can be pretty, I mean, we know from the research that can be pretty severe that there's just a lot of really negative attitudes out there about having been involved with the, the legal system. Um, and for, for many people in our society, it, it kind of signifies that you're a bad person and that you're different from everyone else and that you deserve to be punished um, and that you're untrustworthy and all sorts of things. So it's that, that sort of, um, you know, that sort of label is, is tied to a lot of really negative attitudes um, that are, that are somewhat prevalent out in our society. Um, And then that third way that stigma, I think, impacts people is just through their own sort of thought process, you know, our own ways we think and feel and cope with the fact that we have this part of our history um, that we have to, you know, be judged for by the rest of the society. And so that that's not something to be underestimated. It can, it can be a real serious, um, self-stigma can be a real serious problem for people and um, take away from their ability to, you know, kind of be motivated to, to branch out in the community when they're re-entering and to apply for jobs and to, you know, do the things they have to do like as part of probation so so there's a lot of you know stigma is just it's kind of it's multifaceted there's a lot of ways that it impacts people and and when you have the stigma tied to a criminal background it's just it just tends to be one of the most um one of the most serious stigmas out there because it's universally like we just we blame people that break the law and we think they deserve to be punished so people don't really like to look past that a lot of times yeah. Um, so I, in that, I heard you said there are three uh, kind of like areas of stigmatization. The first one being structural, um, that social stigma, and then the last one being this kind of self-stigma. Um, I guess just kind of focusing in on the first two, where do you think like this stigma stems from? I don't know if like that question makes sense, but like, where do you think we kind of get these negative attitudes or these negative beliefs? Where do they come from? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that all of us, I, I talk about this in, a little bit in some of the trainings that I do with um, professionals to try and reduce stigma. Um, I, I think that all of us develop biases and different sorts of negative attitudes about groups of people based on, I mean, number one, like these messages are kind of 
floating around everywhere in our society. Like, you know, we're inundated with messages about it's bad to go to jail. It's bad to use drugs. You know, some of us have went to, um, we did the dare program, you know, when we were in school, like drugs are like the most evil thing ever. And, you know, you shouldn't do them. And, and yeah, they're, they're not good for you. And they're probably going to, you know, have some negative consequences, but, but we get that message that if you use drugs, you're a bad person. And and the same thing applies to jail, um, going to jail. It's just looked at like, you know, the criminals go to jail, the bad people go to jail, the good people don't. And, and so I think that that message is really prevalent and, and we all see that message um, starting at a very early age. And, and that's one of the big ways I think we initially just learned to other people that have a criminal background. Um, but I also think that, you know, stigma or bias in general, you know, we know it comes a lot from our own personal experiences. Like, you know, if, if we've never met anybody that has a criminal background, it's easier to judge them for it. Um, the, the research shows that, you know, people who know someone who's been incarcerated or, you know, has these sort of issues, you're, you're less likely to have these really negative attitudes about that group. Um, but, um, but then on the flip side of that, some people have had really negative experiences. Some people have been victimized by crime or they've had really a bad experiences with someone in their family, you know, so, so there's all sorts of personal experiences we can have too that influence our attitudes and, and um, all of these things together, you know, Plus, some of us work in settings where we see really, really bad examples, negative examples of what it means to be involved. Like maybe we work in a jail or maybe we work in a, in a treatment setting where we see people kind of struggling constantly. So I think there's, there's settings, too, that we can work in that can contribute to our attitudes um, about what it means to be in this group and whether people are going to ever get better um, and whether they can change and all of it kind of, I think, you know, influences how we think about individuals, individuals with this sort of background. Yeah. So there's a, it seems as if there are a lot of various reasons on why we kind of have these attitudes. Cause just even just some of the things you were saying, like the DARE program, I remember even when I was younger of like, you know, going to jail, bad people go to jail. Um, You know, it's just, it's really just have been embedded in our culture and like kind of how the way we do things um so I very much I can see that in um and I'm just reflecting right now of like you know that makes a lot of sense of kind of how we got here um so kind of going off the you know still the first two um points that you brought up with the structural and the the social stigma I was reading like a brief editorial that you did um and you it was called stigma makes people want to give up um and I wanted to ask you to expand on what do you mean by that um you know why do you say that yeah, I mean, I think that it it speaks to, and, and I think kind of it speaks to social stigma and self stigma in that. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, when people um, when people have a part of their history, you know, that is negatively judged by the rest of society, um, and they know that, you know, they know that about themselves, like they have a criminal background, they have a felony on their background, whatever it is, um, people people are aware of that, you know, they grow up in the same society we do. So they've gone to the same dare classes and they've probably had the parents who said like, it's, you're a bad person if you go to jail. I mean, all those messages are, are with them as well. And so, you know, that uh, does a lot to somebody psychologically when they uh, enter, when they kind of become part of that group now, um, they, when they, when they're the ones that go to jail or have a felony, um, they now, 
all those messages about what it means to have that experience in your history are now kind of personally applicable um, to them and they have to come to terms with that. And it's something that's really, really difficult to, to come to terms with. So there's, so there's already a layer of um, perceiving stigma and expecting to be rejected from the other people in society because you know that you know, this part of you is, is negatively judged and it's going to be looked down upon by, by many people who find out about it. So there's this expectation of being rejected that people face um, when they have a criminal background. And, it, and it's, it's most relevant to um, employment settings and places where they have to apply for things, you know, housing, um, other things like that, the basic things we need, you know, to be able to have like a normal, healthy life. Um, and, and part of the reason is because they actually do experience a fair amount of rejection in those settings. You know, it's not just that they expect it and they worry about it, it's that they actually do. Um, we, we know that people, um, employers are less likely to hire people with a criminal background, housing, um, housing facilities reject people all the time with a criminal background. So we see a lot of actual rejection experiences. Um, when people with this background do apply. Um, so, so, you, so you have all these different layers and you've got like your own kind of self-talk about, you know, thinking like, oh, these people are probably going to reject me. I'm probably never going to be able to get this job. And then it happens, right? And then you are rejected. And so it kind of um, comes true in your mind and it sort of solidifies some of those, um, those attitudes you have about like, what's the point of even trying and why should I, why should I keep pursuing these sort of goals when nobody's going to give me a chance? And, and it creates this sort of situation where people do want to give up. Um, so, so even if people are really motivated at the start to, to change their lives and to kind of be a different person, they face a lot of rejection and, and they already have their own inner sort of, um, self-talk speaking to them about how hard it's going to be. So I think the the mixture of the, of the two does really make people want to give up sometimes. Yeah. And I think that goes well into our question of how does that impact reentry? Um, and I'm seeing, well, you know, the, the previous episodes that we've had on here, we've talked about how important employment and how important, um, you know, all these different things are and you're, you know, when they are faced with these struggles um, and this stigmatization, it seems like it continues to kind of foster that cycle of, you know, recidivism of like, like you said, I'm giving up, I might as well, or like returning to old habits, um, going back to, you know, criminal activity uh, that leads them back into this system, um, cycling in and out, in and out again. Um, so any thoughts on that that you would like to expand on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's when people don't feel like they can succeed through one route, you know, they don't feel like they have a, a path forward. Um, they, they oftentimes go back to what they know. Uh, it's just, you know, people have basic needs that they need to meet, you know, they need food, they need money, they need shelter, they need, you know, we all need connection and relationships. And so it's, um, housing employment. So there's things that, um, that we do to be able to make those things happen. Um, and when you're trying to do it the right way and you're experiencing a lot of hurdles, a lot of rejection, it's just easy to, it's easy to say like, well, I'm just gonna go back to making money the way that I know how to make money, uh, which may not have been a legal, you know, a legal means of making money or 
Um, I'm just going to go back and live with this person that I know cares about me, even though I know they're not the right person for me to be around because they're still using. And I'm, even though I'm trying to stay sober, I'm just going to do it anyways, because who else is going to give me a chance, you know? So, so there's a lot of that that happens, I think, that that does um, by proxy lead people into situations where they end up re-offending and getting back involved with the justice system. Um, you know, the research hasn't really caught up to, to be able to show that clearly through like empirical um, studies to be able to show that there's this connection between these sort of complex experiences with stigma and uh, recidivism outcomes. The research tends to be kind of mixed in that area, but but I do think that you know, just it, I see it all the time in the people I work with. And it just makes sense that when, when one thing's not working for them, uh, they, they tend to go back to old, old habits and, and old habits may have been the ones that got them in trouble in the first place. So. Yes. Um, I completely agree. Um, what uh, type of, you've mentioned that you work with, uh, returning citizens. Um, what type of work do you do? I know this is a little like off topic, but I'm just curious. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right now. Um, so, you know, in, I'm in Tennessee, and I'm doing um, a study where we're, we're doing a stigma intervention, actually, we're testing out a stigma intervention for people that are, um, have substance use problems, but also have a criminal background. And it was adapted from um, an intervention that someone else developed, Jason Luoma, back in 2008. Um, so we've been working together to adapt it for this population of people that are involved in the legal system. And um, I'm implementing that as part of a, a, a pilot trial that's funded by NIDA. And so I'm working with people that are, they're, they're in drug court um, right now, actually. So they're not fully re-entering, but they're in the community. Um, some of them have, you know, it, it's technically a diversion program. So most of them have been able to not experience incarceration and they've been able to get right into treatment, which is nice. Um, but yeah, so I work with them um, doing a stigma intervention to talk about some of these things that we're talking about today. And is it primarily focusing on the self-stigma uh, processes and things like that? Yeah, it is. And, and, and self-stigma broadly, I would say, because okay. a lot of times people with a criminal background, the, the stigma that is most applicable to them is actually that anticipation of being rejected. Those, those worries and expectations and fears around people rejecting them. Um, you know, we, we don't see a ton, ton of, in, of the internalization of stigma, which we haven't talked about yet, but um, we don't see a ton of that in this population. There is some of it, but, but we mostly focus on like um, self-stigma broadly in the sense of like, how do you think about and cope with this sort of background you have? And like, what do you do? Okay. 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 Yeah. That sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to, you know, whenever, you know, it's published and everything yeah. so I can read about it. Um, time to write it up. <laughs> no, it's busy right now. I understand. Um, so going, I know we've talked about you've mentioned at least a little bit about, you know, this self-stigma and these processes. Can you talk a little bit more about this internalization process and, you know, kind of, you've, you've described it a little bit, but, you know, I guess go ahead and tell us about what that is and how that impacts this, this population. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, self-stigma and internalized stigma, just, you know, they're, they're actually used interchangeably in the, in the research literature, but they, for me, they kind of mean different things. Like, Self-stigma, I always think about as just kind of like a broad term to encompass how people think and feel and cope with their experiences that are stigmatized. 
you know, internalization of stigma is something really specific that happens when people begin to um, buy into the stereotypes that are, uh, you know, out there about the group that they're in. Um, so they tend to believe them and they think that they are personally true of themselves and they feel, you know, worthless and, uh, a lot of times they feel a lot of shame, um, around those. And, you know, it, so I'll say that in, in other stigmatized groups, like there's been a lot of work on this in people with substance use disorders, people with mental health problems, people with HIV, um, in those groups, you know, internalized stigma looks kind of, it looks kind of similar. Like it basically looks like people, um, feeling a lot of shame and low self-worth because of their background um, and not wanting to try and just feeling just just kind of like a really low emotional state um, that's tied specifically to having that sort of stigma experience. Now, I will say in um, people that have a criminal background, we don't see internalized stigma as much as other groups. And, and I've done a couple of studies where the rates of internalized stigma are pretty low. So people don't tend to internalize this identity of being a criminal as much as other identities. Like it's common for people to kind of internalize the identity of like, I'm crazy. I'm like when they have a mental health problem or I'm an addict when they have a substance use disorder, but for criminal behavior, we don't see that a lot of people are going around saying, well, I'm just a criminal, you know, I'm, I'm a bad person. I've, um, I'm untrustworthy. I'm, I've ruined my life. I'm going to, you know, like it, it, it looks really different in this population. Like there tends to be something that's a little more self-protective where people don't internalize that label as much. And the people that do internalize it tend to be more antisocial in general, um, and have more of those antisocial, um, personality features that sometimes can, can be, um, present in this population. And so it's interesting. And I'm, I'm doing some work um, right now and with some other colleagues to try and delve into it and figure that part of it out because we don't really know we don't really know about what it means to internalize that label or how often people do it or what it looks like for them um, but we know it does look a little differently from other groups and um, we see stigma more so being problematic in the anticipated kind of realm of like believing that everybody's going to reject me. So therefore I'm not going to try. Um, so that anticipated stigma and the impact that has on behavior, um, which still, you know, your, your expectations, they have a, a big impact on your behavior. So even if you're not walking around thinking like, well, I'm just a criminal, I should give up. Um, it still has a really big impact if you think everyone's going to reject you. And we see that it does, it does um, tend to influence behavior quite a bit. So. Okay. Um, I think that's interesting because I actually never um, paid attention to like, I guess that comparison between how internalization looks different com compared to like mental health um, and individuals who work or not work, but individuals are just as involved. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking like, as a clinician myself, I'm like, no, that makes a lot of sense of, because, you know, just working with clients, you see them, they kind of tend sometimes I tend to kind of embody even just like diagnoses or um you know these labels a little differently than what this particular population was so I'm actually glad you brought that to my attention because I think that's something I would also like to look more into of just trying to understand and um 
see what that is about. Um, one of the things I was also thinking about, like while you were talking about that, because you were talking about um, anticipatory stigma being more prevalent in this population. So are there like factors or things that make it more likely for them to experience or not to experience kind of this anticipatory stigma? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I think I'm kind of going like risk factors, protective factors kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, and I and I did a paper on this a while ago. I should remember this. It's been a few years, so um, I'm trying to think. I, I I think that anticipated stigma, if I'm remembering correctly, because we looked at a few different facets of what we considered to be self-stigma. We looked at like perceived stigma and anticipated stigma and internalized stigma and we looked at like what what are the risk factors for these experiences and one that is standing out that I'm pretty sure we found was that people with low self-esteem tended to anticipate more stigma which which makes sense and, and we do see that like we, we see that people who have more sort of general mental health issues in general like whether it's depression anxiety stress low self-esteem those are going to be the people who are more at risk of experiencing these kind of negative cognitions related to stigma which totally makes sense. You know, if somebody is like already a little depressed or anxious, like they're probably going to be more worried about their criminal background and how other people are going to be viewing them. Whereas if they're doing totally fine, uh, they might have more of an optimistic outlook um, on, on how things are going to go for them. So, so I know that's a factor. Um, I'm trying to, I can't remember other factors that were, that really predicted whether someone would anticipate stigma, but I do know that the kind of that general, mental well-being um mm -hmm. has an impact on that okay so as a um because i know we're both in the field of clinical psychology so as like a practitioner or a clinician is that something that when you're working with justice involved populations that um i guess that is the main target is kind of targeting this low self-esteem and these this like negative self-talk is that something that is the main focus there yeah i mean you know, I, I haven't worked clinically. Well, I do a lot of clinical research doing like structured interventions with this population, but I haven't worked in like traditional kind of therapy settings with this population mm. in a long time. I, I actually worked with a really cool program when I was a postdoc um, that's affiliated with the, the Yale School of Medicine. It was called the Forensic Drug Diversion Clinic. And um, Dr. Sherry McKee is the one who oversees that clinic. I mean, but it, what the counselors were doing there was just incredible. Like they were doing one-on-one, -on -one, like really high quality individual therapy with people leaving incarceration who also had substance use problems. And, and a lot of, we did a qualitative study on people's experiences in that treatment program. And a lot of what they said was that people helped them with their general self-esteem. They helped them not focus on this one aspect of their history that was negative. They helped them look past it. You know, they helped them keep moving towards their goals and, you know, build up their self-efficacy. So, so a lot of it, I think, I think self-esteem and self-efficacy is really tied up into some of this and um, somebody's ability to kind of, you know, feel like they're, they're worthwhile and that they're actually going to be able to succeed at something. So I, I think that was, anecdotally well well from that study too that we did the quality of study and through my experiences kind of doing those interviews um people tended to speak to that a lot so i i do think that self-esteem is a part of it okay um yeah i know like i'm more clinically oriented so that's why i was kind of asking that of like is that an area that you know 
people are looking at or like clinicians are looking at when they're working with I know it's so easy sometimes when you're working with this population to address like substance use which I mean is an immediate concern sometimes before you can actually get to you know negative self-talk but I just didn't know like if that's something that they're actually doing out there um, but it's nice I, to hear I that know, yeah, yeah I know people are doing it I, I I don't think a lot of well I'll say I don't think a lot of community-based clinicians actually ask about people's criminal involvement so a lot of times I don't think they know and if they do know, a lot of times they don't want to work with them because there's stigma even in the in our field of mental yeah. health professionals. Um, so so there's that too. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, and then I guess I was also just thinking about the idea of like when we think of criminogenic needs, that's not necessarily one that's often considered like in those eight uh, it's in the kind of non-criminogenic needs so that's kind of what I was thinking too of like uh, but that but then again there's not a lot of I'm not gonna say there's not a lot of um count clinicians we aren't really using those in session to look at those when we're working at this population so okay but no that makes a lot of sense and um I really like that so I guess kind of like transitioning because we've talked about like the effects of stigma um, from this um, community societal um, aspect as well as like kind of from this self kind of from like self stigma all of these different areas uh, like you said it's very multifaceted and I guess um I'm wondering, you know, just as community members, as supporters, uh, or people even just trying to grow and learn um, in this area, what are some things that we can do to kind of, well, before we get there, before we get there, I do have a question. Um, how are, you know, returning citizens themselves managing this stigma? I think that's something that I want to know first before we go to that question. I mean, the research on stigma management in general in this population, you know, there's there's a few different ways you can manage stigma. One of the way, I mean, I guess you can, in my mind, you can kind of separate it into two different things. Like, you know, you've got uh, trying to conceal your background and, and let as few people know about it as possible and try to kind of pass as somebody who's just normal, whatever that means, um, or you can be a little more open about it and talk about it. Um, there's, there's a lot of good literature about like disclosure and not necessarily with this population, but in other pop, in other stigmatized groups and kind of what that means and whether that's helpful or not. But, but I do think that's kind of the first step is, you know, they have to figure out like, number one, like, how much am I going to talk about this or how big of a part of my life is this? And like, which settings am I able to talk about this past, you know, experience I've had versus which ones do I need to hide it a little bit more. So I do think there's, you know, and the research shows this, there's a little bit of secrecy that goes on because people are worried about being judged, um, especially if they're able to get into an employment setting, you know, they really don't want their coworkers knowing about their history or, um, you know, to be judged for that. And, and you know, I think the how they kind of manage it with their family members is, is a whole different thing. You know, there's a lot of decisions there, but but I do think in general, you know, that that's one of the biggest decision points is just like, how do I make sense of this piece of my history? How big of a part of my identity is it going to be? And who am I going to tell about it? And what settings am I going to talk about it? Um, so I think that's something that people are are dealing with and and they have, and, and that's a very um, individual decision of how people navigate that. And I don't know that there's any one 
way that people use most often. You know, I think that we do know from the literature, there's a lot of secrecy that goes on. People have to decide on those job applications, whether or not to say they have a criminal background, knowing that they're probably going to be rejected if they're honest about it. So there's a ton of that happening. Um, and then, yeah, I think that, you know, people are just in general having to manage the stress that comes along with carrying that extra mental load of cognitive load of having all these decisions to make regarding their, their history. Yeah, I will say I've seen a lot of people kind of been using, you know, their status as a as a platform, you know, to kind of, I guess, like inspire others that are in the same predicament to, you know, that it is possible, it's challenging, um, but being more of like a... Um, motivating trying to motivate others uh, or being like a positive image towards um, people in this population to kind of give them some hope so I have seen that a lot um, very recently of just like you know on social media um, I even saw there's a um, there's a prison reform TikTok hashtag and there's a lot of people on there that um kind of talk about their experiences and, you know, and they give advice and they give encouragement and things like that. So, you know, I, I, I've seen, been seeing a lot of that. And I think that's been clearly working well for people because they seem to be doing well. Okay. Um, so I guess that does leave us to our next, the question that I was going to ask earlier of what can we do as community members, um, you know, just as supporters, like I said, to kind of, reduce discrimination and stigmatization towards this population? Yeah, I think that, you know, what when I do trainings around this with community members, I always tell people to kind of think about, like, just examine your, your own biases and your own attitudes. You know, how do you feel about people that have been to jail or prison? And, um, you know, what, what kinds of attitudes in general do you apply to that group? And what kinds of judgments do you make about that group? And, and where does that come from? I think that's, I think that's one of the first steps to understanding how we community members feel about different groups that we're less comfortable with and just sort of taking an honest look into our own thoughts and feelings about people who have these experiences and where that comes from and, and just just being, you know, kind of taking the time to examine that in ourselves and I mean, there's there's all sorts of other there's all there's all sorts of ways we can reduce stigma, you know, talk about a lot about language um, in in some of the trainings I do, like using the word criminals and felons is not the nicest term um, and it conveys a lot of judgment and the field in general is kind of moving towards or it's moving away from using labels like addict or, you know, mm -hmm. druggy or felon or criminal and we're kind of moving more towards using person first language like person with a criminal background, person with a criminal history, that sort of thing. So, so anytime we can use those, those new terms, it really does help people who've had that experience. If, you know, if they're overhearing you talking to someone else, like it, it makes a big difference when you say person with a criminal background versus felon or criminal. Um, it really, it really does. And there's been research to kind of support that, that it really makes people feel more comfortable around you and, and less judged. So so if this is something, you know, that a community member wants to try and work on and they want to try to be more accepting or they want to try to be less, less judgmental or just, you know, reduce stigma towards this population. I think looking at our own attitudes, looking at our language and, and just thinking about how we treat people, you know, in general, the basic ways we would want to be treated or that we would treat our friends or family um, are ways that we can treat people with these sort of backgrounds. I mean, the, I think it really boils down to the fact that um, 
they're not that different from you or me. Um, and I think it's hard, it's hard for many of us to, to come to that realization, but it's, but I think it's true. And it's something I've seen through my own work, especially that they're just really not different um, when it comes down to it. And um, there are a lot of people that are involved with the legal system are very pleasant people to interact with. And I've really enjoyed my time working with them. So it's, um, it's something that is, you know, it's hard for, for community members sometimes to really think about that. But, but, you know, the more interactions you have with people who have these backgrounds, I think the easier it is. Yeah. And the word that has come into my mind, like after you said all of that is like humanizing. Um, and I know and you brought up language, which my previous episode, like maybe two weeks ago, was about language. So audience, if you didn't get to listen to that, she pretty much summed it up very well, but still go back and listen to that because it's very important. But I think it's very important also to just humanize, normalize this uh, population because instead of othering them, because um, they aren't very different from us, they, they, they made some mistakes, um, but we all have. So, you know, I, I completely understand that. And I'm wondering, are there any other things like, I guess, besides those things that we should be taking into consideration when we're interacting or even when we're working with them? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that just in general, remembering, I mean, something that I always think about is, um, and I've heard this actually from community members that, that do work, like either volunteer work or, or other sort of professional work with this population is just remembering that like it's it's sometimes it's just by luck or by whatever God's grace or whatever that you're not on the other side of the the glass so to speak like that you're not the one who's been to jail I mean because many of us have done things that are illegal or have used a substance or whatever that could have gotten us arrested and so I think remembering remembering that um, is is really helpful and and kind of keeps keeps it it makes it easier to be on the same level as somebody um, and, and yeah, I, I also think that something that's important to remember is just when somebody is leaving jail or prison, um, they're, they're likely at a very vulnerable place in their life. Um, more often than not, they are trying to make positive changes. And, you know, the, the more we can do to support that person, the less they're going to keep committing crimes and going back into that system. So it really does benefit us, I think, too, um, in the long run to, to be a little more um, accepting of people. Yes. And, you know, with that, I think that is like a great place to close off. Um, I hope people are able to, you know, understand what we're trying to convey to them. And Dr. Moore, I really do thank you for coming on here, you know, sharing your expertise and giving us your knowledge and your advice of things. Um, I do want to ask you, do you have any like social media outlets that you want the that the audience could look up? to get, I guess, like to know more about you or a website um, that you would like to announce or anything like that? Yeah, my, um, we, my lab, uh, we have a, a Facebook and a, and a Twitter account. My student manages it. I, I do have those. I'll have to, I, I don't have anything to do with it though. They man, my students are great. They manage it entirely, but it's for the care lab at ETSU. So you can probably find it um, or I can give you the details on it. So if anybody's interested, then they can look it up. Yeah, and I'll you guys, I will put that in the bottom um, description thing. So if you are interested in looking more into Dr. Moore's research or what her lab is currently working on, feel free to um, go to her 
Lab Facebook page. It will be down there in the description box. Um, and thank you guys for tuning in to More Life today. As always, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at More Life The Reentry Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>